Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month, we're talking costumes and fashion in film. And today, we're talking about Lick Tundon's 1966 film, Amrapali. <laughs> The Lichavi kingdom and the kingdom of Magad are at war with each other. Against all odds, the underdog capital of the Lichavis, Beishali, achieves victory during an invasion by Magad and its warmongering king, Ajazhatru, leading to exuberant celebration among the Vaishalites. Amrapali, a young woman living in Beishali, receives word of this victory from a Vaishalite soldier whose wounds she tends and with whom she soon falls in love. The audience soon discovers, however, that the heretofore unnamed Vaishalite soldier is actually the king Ajaz Shatru. He is kidnapped by men working for Balpadra Sen, the head of state of Vaishali, who is secretly working for Magad. The two conspire to weaken Vaishali with drink and entertainment. Meanwhile, Amrapali challenges another young woman to a dance-off at the royal court. As the superior dancer and true patriot, Amrapali is selected as the new royal courtesan of Vaishali, a position that bestows upon her wealth and fame and in which she serves as a performer at various times throughout the film. Amrapali continues to encounter the man she thinks is a Vaishalite soldier, and he finds favor in the Vaishali court. Balbadra Sen leads the Vaishalite military brass to believe they can even use the soldier in subterfuge due to his uncanny resemblance to Ajaz Shatru. The Magad leadership become concerned that Ajaz Shatru's relationship with Amrapali is endangering both his life and the fate of Magad, and they endeavor to have the courtesan killed, though in the end they are unable. One day, however, the artist Som overhears the soldier in discussion with his Magad henchman, revealing to Som the soldier's true identity. Som reveals the truth to Amrapali by creating a sculpture in the likeness of the soldier, only with the king's beard and royal crest, such that she realizes his true identity as well. When Ajaz Shatru finally comes to tell Amrapali of his true identity, she refuses him, even as he invites her to run away with him and become the queen of Magad. Ajaz Shatru is finally convinced to return to Magad when he learns his mother has just passed. Ashamed of her betrayal to the kingdom, Amrapali tells the assembled court she wishes to resign her position, only to discover that some in the court are already aware of Ajaz Shatru's presence and her relationship with him, and that they think she intends to leave her position so she can marry him. They execute the army commander of Magad, who has also been sneaking around Vaishali and plan to execute Amrapali as well. As revenge for the killing of the army commander and in order to save Amrapali, Ajaz Shatru invades Vaishali again and this time emerges victorious. But Amrapali is appalled at the violence, asking Ajaz Shatru how he could kill the beloved of so many people only to save the woman he loved. Amrapali wanders away and joins an assembly of Buddhist devotees listening to the Buddha's sermons of peace and Ajaz Shatru follows her. All right, David, what were your thoughts on this movie? So in keeping with the topic of the month, the theme of the month, I thought the costuming was really impressive as well as the, the set design. But I did, I have to admit, I did get lost at several points during the plot. And I felt like maybe some of the tone was a little bit jumbled, but I'm sure, you know, we'll get into that. Generous as always. 
Um, <laughs> I mean that as a compliment, but <laughs> um, I, I, I really will get into it more. But I really, I enjoyed this movie on many levels. Before we talk about the movie itself, I wanted to give a little bit of background information. Um, Amrapali was a historical slash religious figure who lived, it is said, between the years of 600 and 500 BC. And she's a religious figure in both the Buddhist and Jain traditions. In the movie, we see that she has a relationship with the king Ajaj Shatru. In real life, she's said to have a relationship either with him or with his father, who was a king known as Bimbisara, like with a lot of religious or historical figures, the true details are a little bit unknown. In the movie, they refer to her as a kind of courtesan. Um, she was what's called a nagarvadhu, which is something like a bride of the city. In other words, these were figures who in certain Indian kingdoms were picked out to be courtesans in the royal courts, but they were also public figures and known to the general populace. And that's why she becomes very famous among the the ordinary people in the city. And something I read about was how the portrayal of courtesans changed a lot depending on the time and the context. In some cases, this is seem, seen as kind of a noble position or a neutral position. In other cases, it's kind of derided as you know, still prostitution. In any case, this film we watched was from 1966. It was at least the third cinematic interpretation. And just a little bit of background information, the city of Vaishali and the kingdom of Magadh were located in what is now northeastern India, and uh, those cities are ruins there now. I wonder, David, how you feel in general about cinematic interpretations of religious slash mythical figures. Well, I guess, it, you know, it kind of depends on the specific example. If we're talking about something like the depiction of Christ in Ben-Hur, which is um, very kind of staid and, and reverential versus the depiction of Christ in something like The Last Temptation of Christ, which uh, not to say that that's not, you know, that's not respectful, but it's a much more like humanistic interpretation of the figure. Same thing with the, the Passion of the Christ, which I think is very very focused on on bloodshed. There are a lot of different films that interpret religious figures in a lot of different ways. I tend to enjoy the more reverential takes on these figures, not, not necessarily for any particular uh, religious or political reason, but I think it makes for the most interesting filmmaking. One of the most interesting shots of this film is at the end when they go to worship with Buddha it becomes a very like vibrant, colorful film in a very different way than it had been before to extend the comparison in the same way that in Ben-Hur, whenever he crosses paths with Jesus Christ, uh, we, you know, it stands out because it doesn't show uh, Jesus's face. And it's, it's a very, it's a very distinct moment. We might get to this a little bit more later. Something that I noticed about this movie and there's another movie that I've seen that cons that's, takes place kind of in the same period, and it has to do with Buddhist ideals. And that movie is called um, Ashoka, starring Shah Rukh Khan. 
case you're wondering. Um, but <laughs> both Ashoka and this movie do a kind of thing where the vast majority of the movie is focused on the love story. And then right there at the end, we see like the transformation. It's almost the same too, of the main characters finding peace and devotion to the Buddha. So it's almost like, even though the King Ashoka and also this uh, historical figure, Amrapali, they're, they're known because of their devotion to Buddha, that's actually not really the part of their lives that's featured so much in these movies, right? It's like, let's look at the romance and their life as either like bloodthirsty conquerors in the case of Ashoka or, you know, wealthy, famous courtesans in the case of Amrapali. Let's look at that for most of the movie. And then in the end, here's our moral message. It does kind of feel like in some ways, maybe Either they didn't want to make a film about religion or they weren't really sure how to go about it. And so you stick with the typical like trappings of an epic and then you insert something that is religious at the end. So speaking about this movie particularly, the director was Lick Tundon, and this was only his second film as a director. And as far as I could tell, it was his only epic. This movie actually didn't get a very good reception. Um, and his later films wound up being a lot of more kind of lighthearted family drama movies. Um, but the funny thing is that now this movie is more appreciated in the past and he's really well known for it. This film was also the Indian entry for Best Foreign Language Film at the 39th Oscars. And something that you and I had talked about was how surprising the length of this film was. Only two hours, right? Whereas your typical Indian movie is going to be like two and a half to three and a half hours long. And I saw this in only one place online, so take it with a grain of salt. But a blogger mentioned that she has a VHS coffee, copy that is three hours long. And her guess was that perhaps there was a three-hour-long version of the film and they trimmed it down to two hours in order to make it more palatable to the Academy. Um, I know for a fact there's at least one recorded song that didn't make it onto the two-hour version of the film and probably all kinds of other stuff. But even with all that effort, it wasn't accepted as an, as an entry at the Oscars. And I don't have... Any research that indicates why, but just based on your gut feeling, David, why do you think they might not have accepted this movie? I mean, it, it is hard to say without research. The Academy has kind of a long history of excluding various foreign films. Uh, and I don't I don't know that I've ever seen them explain specifically why they excluded one or the other. So it's possible that they never specifically said. I do want to point out, and I don't know how true this was back in, in 1966, but aside from from the united states kind of thinking of itself as being the the peak of cinema and then you know perhaps with europe as as being the peak of art cinema there is a general sense that particularly like bollywood films are not necessarily high quality they're not especially artistic whatever they're kind of just entertainment and like here we make serious films um <laughs> i think that's the case now i'm not sure again in 66 what it would have been Right. Um, gosh, again, I don't know either how much Americans knew about South Asian film, but I imagine in the 60s, for people who did know film, probably Bengali film was the better known uh, regional cinema from South Asia, and that was considered to be very artistic. 
I guess I'm not I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but I was thinking also kind of in the later sixties, early seventies, we started with the American like hippie infatuation with uh like broadly the East, right? I'm wondering would that would that have impacted Americans' knowledge of like Bollywood of a film like this or you know, I really don't know. And I think, too, we have to remember that at the time, it wasn't so easy to get foreign films if a big, like an MGM, didn't pick it up and bring it to the U.S., right? Right. Um, we didn't have VHS. We didn't have the internet or anything like that. And I kind of imagine the only way that you could get exposure to these kind of films might be if you lived in an area with a pretty, like, significant South Asian community. Because in, you know, immigrant communities, they'll bring over their own movies. And I don't know how tenable that would even have been at the time, given technology. So I just wonder, even if there was underground interest in this kind of movie, how would you even get access to it unless you traveled to India and then just came back and told all your friends or something? Right, right. As far as the stars in the movie, we have once again Vijay and Timala, which if you listen to our Devdas episode several months ago she also starred in that and that was about 11 years before this um she thought that amrapali was going to be her magnum opus and when it didn't do well she said to have been very disappointed and that this might have led to her retirement she did make a couple of movies after this but then she basically lost interest in cinema and she would have been only in her early 30s, which is unfortunate. I liked her a lot better in this than in Dave Das. I felt like she had a lot more personality here. Like, almost like the personalities could have been, maybe not switched, but the personality she showed in this mo- movie would have been very good for Dave Das. Her co-star was uh, Sunil Dutt, and he was quite famous in the late 50s and 60s. Probably his biggest movie was Mother India from 1957. The interesting thing about him is he often played second banana to his female co-stars, which even today is relatively uncommon. Movie makers tend to think that a movie that does not have a male protagonist who is the main, main character is not going to do as well. So I thought that was really interesting. I guess it's unfortunate that Amrapali at the end of the day didn't do so well. Um, with a female lead. If you are a follower of more recent Hindi cinema, you'll also know that Sunil Dutt is the father of Sanjay Dutt. You remember Munabai and BBS? I do. I was literally about to ask if that was the uh, the lead from from that film, uh-huh. right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So what uh, a what a strange movie that was. <laughs> <laughs> So we have Vijayanthimala, uh, Sunil Dutt, and like several other actors. But I just wanted to really quickly draw attention to a very small-time character in this movie who was the Vaishali Empress. You would have seen her in the court scenes in Vaishali. Her part was played by an actress named Ruby Myers. And her stage name was Sulochna. And I... Bring her up because she's one, her, like, her career was more in the early, very early days of Hindi cinema, like in the 20s during silent films. And the super interesting thing is that she was a member of the Indian Jewish community. And at that time, just like in a lot of cultures, um, within Hindu and Muslim families, it wasn't seen as honorable honorable for a woman to go into acting. 
But there wasn't, I guess, that kind of taboo within Jewish families. So a lot of the early films featured Jewish actresses, even though they're quite a small minority within India. Um, and this was one of Ruby Meyer's later roles. So the reason that I picked this movie is because we are talking about costumes this month. And before I get into the details, I wanted to know, David, what struck you about the costumes and makeup in this movie? So I want to emphasize, first of all, that I know very, very little about costuming. First of all, I really I really loved the costuming uh, and I loved how colorful the movie is. Really vibrant film. But what struck me the most was I kept thinking about the the film Jason and the Argonauts. The Harryhausen, most people remember the stop motion skeletons fighting Jason and the, the you know, mythical whatnot. Um and what reminded me so much of it was that that kind of definite like having a film that's set in the you know far distant past almost like in that case it was uh, purely mythological watching a film like that that has all these actors who who just like everything about them screams the 1960s uh, <laughs> and that was kind of my big takeaway because the guys have these, you know, it's like big hair is kind of the name of the game. And like, I, I don't, you know, I can't really speak to it, but also the the makeup that the women had on really made me think of the 60s as well. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very odd kind of anachronistic experience. I think it's really, it's really fun, but it's interesting to watch, you know. And I know I told you that one reason I picked this movie is that I, in general, detest the styles of the mid-late 60s. I don't like, I don't like the big hair. I don't like the miniskirts. I don't, like, I don't, I don't like the eye makeup, you know. I don't like peace. I don't like love. I don't like rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) But the, but the very funny thing to me is that these same, a lot of these same trends meld very well with the aesthetics in Indian cinema. I think it looks so good when you have this really thick eyeliner and this really big hair, but the clothing is totally different. It's not like ratty bell bottoms or kind of (laughs) ridiculous mini skirts. It's really exquisite, um, both men's and women's wear. And I just love the effect. I didn't really explain what the costumes look like. Um, Obviously, a picture is worth a thousand words. So even if you don't watch this movie, I recommend Googling some stills so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. But just briefly, the young women in this movie are outfitted in these kind of like for the time, pretty revealing outfits with these basically bustiers and uh, paired with a kind of pants and with veils and all different bright colors. And then the men are wearing somewhat kind of bouffant hairdos with a lot of curls, these big dangling earrings. I'm sorry, is that is that kind of like how um, how Bruno Mars does his hair? Oh, a bouffant? Yeah, is that? Uh, I don't really know what Bruno Mars looks like. Let me look really quick. Okay, because like I don't. That was also what I was thinking about. It's like a bunch of guys running around like Bruno Mars is, you know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I see him now. Yeah, you're right. Um, uh, okay. And the 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 bouffants in this movie were a little bit more understated, but they're definitely there. Um, and the men are also wearing very interestingly draped fabrics and fancy jewelry and all these things. Again, go Google it and look at it. It's fabulous. The costume designer here was Panu Ataya, and she 
is incredibly accomplished. She worked for like five decades in the Hindi, mostly Hindi film industry. She began her career as a freelance fashion designer. And just a few examples of her other movies are uh, Piazza from 1957, Gandhi from 1982, where she worked with John Molo, and they both won Best Costume Design for that movie. Uh, more recently, she did Lagan in 2001. Those are just a few among many, many, many films she worked on. She's known for doing a lot of on-site research, which I'm going to get into in a little bit about this movie. But to give another example, there was a movie in the early 1970s that took place in two villages in Rajasthan, which is in northwest India. And the two villages were relatively rural. And Rather than be in the big metropolis of Mumbai looking through books and coming up with costumes, she decided to go to those villages and spend time there and make the clothing there. And apparently the villagers there commented that the actors completely blended in because the costuming was so accurate. So she was really into that. She was pretty important in changing attitudes about fashion in terms of she got a lot of inspiration from traditional India rather than the British Raj. So I think she was born in like 1929. So right when she was coming of age in this environment was when India had just won independence. And they were kind of, you know, it was a new world pretty much. Other things about her is that she believed strongly that one person or one team should style an entire film. So if you look at a lot of movies, each protagonist, maybe protagonist A, protagonist B, and then maybe all the extras, each one will have their own costume designer working with their own separate vision. And she felt strongly that you needed unity for everybody who was, con all the characters who are in a film. At the end of the day, she felt kind of underappreciated in India, even though her career has been really long. As far as Amrapali, to get inspiration for the costume, she went to the Ajanta and Alora caves, which are in central west India. And there are these caves where it doesn't look like a cave like you're picturing. It looks kind of like if you're familiar with the Petra in Jordan. Are you familiar with Petra in Jordan? Is this a good uh, example? Only vaguely. So if you kind of know Petra in Jordan is like there's a facade that's just carved out of the rock. They didn't. Is that Indi Indiana Jones? Yeah, where they uh, oh duh yeah. yeah, it's where they film okay. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That thing, right? It looks like a building, but it's carved out of existing rock. These caves are the same way. They just look like buildings, but they're they're carved into the rock. They contain Buddhist, Jain, and Hindu sculpture and frescoes dating from about the second century BC to 1080. So she went there and looked at these sculptures and frescoes to get ideas. Because even though the Buddha obviously has been represented in a million different ways, uh, Amrapali doesn't have that much artistic representation in terms of references that you can go look at in the library. That's why Ataya felt like she needed to go someplace to see the information first firsthand. Even though this movie didn't do super well, the outfits were very influential. So people talk about Amrapali blouses or Amrapali outfits, and it kind of became a go-to design for a lot of films after Amrapali, even films where they didn't really make sense, right? Like, 
she she went and made these costumes for this particular period, which was supposed to be like 500 BC. But in later films, they'd just be like, oh, this is a period movie. That's a cute outfit. Let's use this. And you can still see these outfits uh, today. For as influential as the women's costumes were in this movie, what impressed me the most, honestly, were the men's costumes. And I wonder, David, as a man, do you wish it were within our culture, more culturally acceptable for men to wear, you know, showy jewelry and all this kind of ornamentation like you see on the nobility in the film and whether you think you would partake. Well, so first off, I know I would not partake, uh, not out of any any sort of like toxic masculine objection, but some, I I cannot I can barely dress myself, uh, <laughs> so that's the perspective I'm coming at this from. Uh, I think it's good in general for any any society to be culturally acceptable of. of how anyone wants to dress themselves. It's their, you know, it's their business. I guess I'm kind of thinking that like, I, I do think this is changing in the U S um, to the extent that we're in, in many ways reliving the sixties. Right. I think fashion has also been impacted in that way. Again, I'm, you know, I'm no expert on this. So just kind of speaking from, from personal experience, from what I've seen, uh, but like it does seem that men are allowed uh, more frequently to dress in, in kind of like you were saying, in more uh, showy or perhaps like glamorous ways, right? Like it's no longer, I guess, the 90s and grunge and everyone has, you know, jeans and a plaid shirt. So it, it seems to me like we're we're making a good amount of headway there. And, and it also, I'm sure, varies, I, I guess, within like subcultures as well. Uh, so I know like I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of metal and I think it's never really discussed this way, but I think the way a lot of men in metal dress is in some ways similar, right? It's obviously very aesthetically different, but there is a lot of like ornamentation, right? You have your patch jacket and you have like all these metal pieces on it and you have, you know, your studs, your earrings, your tattoos, like all, all of these elements. So I think it, it in, In some ways, depending on where you go, we kind of are there. Something that fashion historians of the West talk about a lot is how, and and I guess I agree. I mean, and I love a man in a suit. I think it looks great. But I also, for as much as the culture may be changing, I know that there's still certain expectations, especially if you're working in a professional environment, for example. But, you know, in the early 19th century, is when menswear kind of changed to what we recognize today as the suit, basically. And prior to that, you had a lot more ornamentation that was acceptable for men, right? Like the white powdered wigs and the colorful jackets. And earlier than that, like earrings and all these things. So I just, I feel bad that that men, it's like they don't have as many options to ornament themselves. And to some extent, their clothing is so boring if they want to stay within what is culturally acceptable. Finally, I wanted to add, I guess the thing that was so impressive to me about the menswear in this is just how flattering so much of this looked on, on especially Sunil Dutt, who is our, our main character. You know, like he has these pompadours and these big dangly earrings, which I never thought would look flattering on a man, but I thought he looked super handsome. Oh, he looked great. I totally agree. I thought he was, um, uh, was this, on fleek, right? 
Am I no, cool? no, I don't think it works like that. But anyway, <laughs> well, I, I hate to give this kind of short shrift, but I have so much to go over about this movie. But I did want to at least mention a little bit the sets, because as you mentioned, they were very fabulous. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about them? So uh, those of you who have heard the Patreon exclusive episode we did about Mulholland Drive last week. In that episode, we were talking about how that film was shot very much for television. It used a lot of heavy close up and was really close ups and was really focused on kind of like, you know, actors eyes and their their mouths like really, really tight. Um, and I think this film is kind of an excellent example of almost the polar opposite strategy because watching this, I think uh, the thing that bothered me the most watching the film was that I wasn't watching it projected on a big screen because it really, especially from the, the opening shot of, you know, the giant battle that they have, it's just like begging for that, like super wide scope uh, that you don't, you, you can never quite get at home. You know, to bring that more specifically to the sets, I think it does a lot of interesting use of kind of on location. Like we were, um, like I was saying with the the battle sequence, it's clearly on location, and then we kind of switch over to the towns, and then in uh, in the final sequence of the film when they're going to worship that piece. Uh, part of what I like so much about it was that we have the trees, and you can see in the back, the very back of it they have a, a matte painting. And so it's kind of using multiple different like layers of techniques for different sections of the film uh, to build up something that's very, very uh, uh, vibrant. And, and it feels like you can, you know, you can go and live there. It's very, very livable. Strongly recommend watching the film if for nothing else than the sets. Yeah. For, you know, whatever faults it has, it's really just a feast for the eyes to use a cliche. You just, you can't, you, you can't stop watching. It's so pretty. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the music and dance in this film. As we know, in most South Asian movies, music and dance is super, super important. The composers here were a duo, Shankar, Jay Kishan, and this movie gave them an opportunity to showcase more of their classical work because of the period nature of the film. Um, and we also had two lyricists working here. We had Shailendra and Hashrat Jaipuri. And I wanted to talk just really quickly about lyricists in Hindi films because what I think is so interesting about them is that then and now, very often, their primary profession is as, uh, as, as poets. And in South Asia, particularly, the Urdu language poetry has a lot of prestige. So most of them are Urdu poets. And uh, some of these lyricists, particularly in this case, Hasrat Jaipuri, I know that I know was educated in Persian. And because of the history of the influence of Persian culture in South Asia, that has significance. Lata Mangeshkar, who we talked about in Devdas, sang all the songs in this movie. And she sang like all the songs in every movie from about like 1950 to around like the early 2000s. Incredibly prolific. And then our choreographer for this movie was Gopi Krishan. And I think he's a really interesting 
figure because he came from a family of dancers and he also acted occasionally and danced. So just like in so many cultures, a lot of the focus is in dance is on women and usually it's women who do the dancing. So I think it's so interesting when you have uh, a man be able to be in these roles. He acted when he was very young in the movie Chanak Chanak Payal Baje, which came out in 1955. And that movie really revitalized public interest in Indian classical dance. And then after that, he went on to choreograph a whole bunch of dance in many, many movies, including this one, and also maybe most famously Umrao Jan, which came out in 1981. And by the way, that movie I referenced earlier, Janak Janak Payabaje, I really, I'm so tempted to watch it for this podcast, but the movie is not that great, but the dancing is incredible. Um, so I, I just like go go Google it and just watch the dances. It's just so amazing. We talked a little bit about the dance when we talked about the movie Devdas. And I wondered how you thought the dance in Amrapali compared to that movie and how it compares to the dance in more recent Hindi films that we've seen. Well, I think it, it certainly mirrors the rest of the text and some of the themes, uh, because as we had spoken in the episode on Def Das, uh, what surprised me so much about the dancing there was that typically it was one, maybe two figures dancing at any given time, which is very different from like the the modern or, or I guess a circa 2000s Bollywood films I was accustomed to seeing, which is typically like big performance pieces. And I think that that suited that film really well because it's such an intense personal drama and it's so focused on that. Whereas here, I think even though many of the dance sequences are still a single figure, it does seem like there's a lot more work given to kind of the rest of the mise-en-scene to make it appear kind of more grand and we do also get a few dance sequences that are like large crowds right where we have maybe maybe four like figures that are up front and center and then a large group that are kind of doing similar motions in the background i'm no expert but again since i i came into bollywood with those 2000 films i tend to prefer the larger dance numbers but it is kind of in in retrospect I think it makes sense in a film, you know, a big epic like this. It makes more sense here and perhaps less sense in something like Kalhonoho, which <laughs> is that similar kind of intense melodrama about three figures. And we have all these dance sequences where like the entire neighborhood is dancing. But then, <laughs> you know, I say that and then I'm like, but I love that. No, that's great. Keep it in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, something I noticed, and I think as I mentioned in the episode on Devdas, was that having people dance in groups was a, an idea that came in along later, and you do see it in this movie. But I noticed that the dancers are not quite in sync with each other. Like, they're all a little bit off, and it, it kind of bothered me. Because if you watch <laughs> if you watch newer movies, they're all, like, super in sync. Like, they've really got it down. But it's like, at this point, they, they, still, they still hadn't quite maybe figured out what the best approach was to getting that perfect timing. It seems kind of analogous to... I know there have been a couple, couple of pieces, maybe a study or two, to this effect, arguing that musicians now are much more technically talented or, or technically proficient than 
they were kind of back in the day, especially in like the classical era. The idea being that like older musicians kind of practiced in a certain way. And then the ones that followed them learned the good habits and, and left the bad habits behind. And you continue in that pattern until like you get to the modern day where people can become very technically proficient because they know immediately what steps they have to take to get there. So I wonder if it's not kind of the same thing with with dance. Yeah, and I even notice it with Hollywood movies from maybe like the 50s or it, so when they have big group dances like that, they're also not totally in sync. Maybe it took like the age of music videos to to bring in that that really exacting kind of form. Right. It's interesting too cuz I wonder if you started out with films from like the 50s and 60s and then came to now, you would see them as being kind of cold and almost computer-like because everything is too exact, you know? Oh, totally. Yeah, I get that too. We did talk about her in the Dave Das episode, but I just want to briefly reiterate that Vijay Antimala is a trained dancer. And so she, again, was one of the main actresses who brought really skilled dancing to um, indie films. The next thing that I wanted to talk about was themes. So if you look at this film, I could see a few. We have patriotism, love, anti-war sentiments, and maybe a bit of like republic versus monarchy. And I want to say that it was really hard for me to find very specific information about how social opinion in the 60s in India would have influenced filmmakers as far as what kinds of themes they wanted to emphasize. I couldn't really find anything exact. So part of the podcast is going to be just a lot of us spitballing. And I also wanted to clarify that apparently the two kingdoms that were in conflict, Magadh, which is the kingdom with, you know, the, the conqueror, they were a monarchy or an empire, basically, whereas the Lichavi, the Lichavi kingdom, which is the the conquered ultimately they were said to be more like a republic it's a little bit hard to understand that just watching the movie but i when i was reading background information apparently that was the case so somebody so some people read that theme into this film as well as kind of uh lichavi maybe being the more the morally superior state with what little we kind of know already i had a couple questions as regard these themes and the first one is that we see that Amrapali, she's really, really patriotic. They pick her to be the courtesan because she's a great dancer, but also because she's like, hey, Vaishali, number one, I love this city, whatever. She's super patriotic. But then at the end of the movie, we get this anti-war message where they go and they see the Buddha and all this kind of stuff. And I wondered whether you thought that the strong patriotic element either supported or hindered the anti-war message in here? Well, so I kind of alluded to it at the start of the episode, but I think this is kind of where the film falls down pretty hard, or at least falls down pretty hard for me. It's hard to have an intense sense of patriotism and then argue that war is bad because, you know, so frequently war is kind of an outgrowth of, or at the very least justified by a sense of patriotism, right? As, as anyone, you know, anyone living in the United States during the early 2000s could tell you, that like we were, you know, sold a, a horrifying illegal war mostly on the basis of like, well, this country is great. There wasn't really 
a coherent rationale to it. So I think those those two ideas are kind of in conflict. So there's a quote, and it's it's actually not really an exact quote, but there's a quote from Francois Truffaut, the uh, famous French uh, new wave filmmaker, who said that it's not possible to make an anti-war film. And his argument was that basically depicting something kind of makes it exciting, right? And I think that is very much true with this film. One of the first sequences we get is this gigantic battle and there are elephants and people throwing fireballs and I'm watching it like, this is rad, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, and then at the end of the film, the protagonist is, you know, very much like, oh, please forgive me for what I've done. It's hard to say how seriously the filmmakers wanted to make something that was anti-war, if for nothing else then for the fact that that, that initial battle sequence is constructed so carefully and is so extraordinarily exciting. It's really hard to think of a a supposed anti-war film that is wholesale, like really effective in its portrayal of war actually being bad. Um, But I think that's, you know, part of the problem here. Yeah, I think the message is a little bit muddled because there doesn't really seem to be anything pictured where Amrapali lets go of her patriotism in favor of just being anti-war. After Ajaz Shatru slaughters all the people in her city, she says, how could you kill all these people just for me? But she still frames it as, how could you kill all these Vaishalites vac- uh, just for me, like my people? So, We can imagine maybe she has that same compassion for anybody, but because she frames it in terms of her countrymen getting killed, it it muddles the message because it seems also like she's just upset because harm came to her own country. Sure. On top of that, we have the problem of like, she was upset at him because he killed all these people just for her. That's not how wars occur, uh, especially kind of... In the modern era, and and again, this is speaking from a very American perspective, but like there are a bunch of complicated reasons and capitalism and whatnot that compel people to go and like cause mass destruction and murder and everything. So it's very, it's hard to say that this is effectively communicating any kind of anti-war message because it still has such a strong foot in the almost like fairy tale notion of its story. My own thinking, too, is that, again, I couldn't find super specific literature about this, but my guess maybe is that the filmmakers don't want to come down too hard on patriotism because uh, this movie came out in 1966. India had just fought a war with Pakistan in 1965. So I read that there was there's always like an ebb and flow in nationalism, but it kind of spiked after that war. So even if in their idealism they think an anti they they're anti-war, they don't they don't want to show a protagonist who who decides, you know, humanity above everything and not just my country, right? Right. Which is analogous in some ways to the kind of George Orwell rationale for for being against imperialism. The idea is that, you know, the imperialist winds up looking silly and foolhardy. And this this notion is continued through um much of American cinema with like anti-Vietnam war films. One of the most famous ones, Apocalypse Now, that film isn't really about 
how horrible it is that the United States came to this country and, you know, killed tons of people and destroyed so much. It's about, you know, these soldiers kind of looking around uh, morosely and thinking, like, what are we even doing here? So even then, in being like an anti-war film, supposedly, it's just, oh, this is kind of a terrible American blunder. We never should have done this. Um, which, I mean, like you said, it's hard to argue that that's really anti-war. It's hard to say this because I don't want to sound like I'm really condemning the film because I don't mean to, but I think you can enjoy it more and appreciate its value in a much stronger way if you understand it to be largely superficial. And uh, when I say superficial, I don't mean uh, totally, you know, devoid of meaning. Uh, but I just mean that, like, the the actual craft seems to be the point right the mm. the costuming and the makeup and the sets and the you know the big battle scenes and everything like that's the reason they made the film once you start getting into some of the thematic elements or political analysis i think it it seems pretty clear that the film doesn't really is in some ways trying hard not to take too strong of a stance in any particular way. So that's not, I, I don't think it's an especially fruitful way of viewing the film. Uh, although I do think it's still, it's important to talk about how these films treat these bigger issues as well. Something that I couldn't find information about that I'm super curious about is Buddhism is practice in India, but it's very much a minority religion. And yet it pops up fairly frequently in movies as a th as a theme in this movie or like in Ashoka, which I mentioned earlier. And like the people making the films are almost certainly not Buddhist. So um, if any listeners could let us know what's going on there, why the interest in the subject, is it just more of a uh, well, this is part of India's history. So we made movies and especially as far as the pacifist messaging is concerned i'd like to know if there's anything deeper behind that so uh you know shoot us an email there's one other thing i wanted to get to that i i couldn't help thinking about while i was watching this movie and that has to do with the transformation in body types that you see in specifically bollywood specifically hindi film if you see the characters, like, how would you describe Ajaz Satru, our male star? How would you describe his body type? Chonkers. Uh <laughs> <laughs> better not edit, edit that out. <laughs> oh, you know I will. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but uh, seriously, I think, I think like, uh, and I'm not trying to be funny about this, but like Hardy, right? Oh. Um, kind of how if you're a person who like does physical work and goes out and does a physical job but doesn't necessarily adhere to a very particular diet or or you know isn't focused on like bodybuilding or something i think maybe a lot of times this is kind of the body you you kind of get where there's like clearly muscle but it's not our like arnold schwarzenegger style like impression of what a muscular man looks like yeah, he he was ever so slightly paunchy, I guess you could say. And then Vijayanthimala's character, or well, Vijayanthimala was also, I guess, what would you call it? Like nourished? <laughs> 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 like they both look great. Um, but it's, here's the thing I'm getting at. Um, these kind of body types 
in Hindi film, I've you can see a change. Um, so this film is from the 60s, right about around the year 2000 and later is where I noticed actors began to, if they were men, they started to be pretty buff, you know, to varying degrees, sometimes just a little bit. Sometimes they're like Hrithik Roshan with a million muscles. Um, and with women, they started to slim down a lot. And I've, for the most part, only noticed this in Hindi Bollywood cinema, right? Like the biggest, the biggest industry in South Asia. And, but if you look at other regional cinemas, like in South India, you don't notice it as much. The actors in those films are still like a little bit curvier, like less quote unquote fit. My guess is that the reason for this difference is that just like Hollywood is so dependent on the international box office for its returns, or at least it was, I don't know what's happening now, but anyway, um, a similar thing could be said for Bollywood. So Hindi films from Mumbai get exported to countries that have large South Asian populations, so particularly the United States, the UK, South Africa, places like that. My guess is that nowadays, because the body type expectations in those countries are more muscular, more slender, my guess is that the filmmakers in Mumbai pick actors and actresses or shape their bodies in such a way to appeal to those audiences because they have to play to those audiences and not just the audiences at home in India. Whereas like the smaller industries like the, the Telugu film industry or the Tamil hi- film industry, they also export, but they're... They a lot of their films still run very much in these small uh, regional theaters rather than in big megaplexes in cosmopolitan areas, and they don't get exported as much. So my guess is for that reason, the body types of actors in those industries have not changed as much. Well, I I think that's an interesting idea, and that timeline actually perfectly coincides with a ph- phenomenon in the U.S. specifically in Hollywood that I think I've actually spoken about on this podcast before. Uh, but if I have, just as a refresher, they essentially changed the way in which men were expected to bulk up for a role. Uh, so the most clear delineation of this is Hugh Jackman as he appears in the very first X Men film. Uh, so if you look at uh, screen grabs of that, like there are you know, chunks of the film at the beginning where he's shirtless and he doesn't, he looks maybe a little more buff than the f- men in Amrapali, but it is still very much that kind of like muscle with some like fat over it. Uh, and then there was kind of a revolution because it took it, it takes so much for actors to like beef up you gotta you know eat right and go to the gym and do all of this and uh, a lot of the people who um i'm not sure what you would call them by i suppose the personal trainers who are working on hollywood came onto the idea of like oh well essentially if you dehydrate someone their muscles tend to stand out more and so that's where we get the more muscly like specifically veiny appearance so part of that is they're building muscle but a bigger part of that is that just like they're dehydrated and so those elements are shown more clearly so perhaps they can appear to be more muscular than they actually are and they can do it in a faster time than they previously could have 
And so X-Men, which came out in, I believe, the year 2000. And then I I believe already by X-Men 2, if not by X-Men 3, which came out in 2006, Hugh Jackman uh, started being on this like dehydration exercise program. That sounds incredibly unhealthy. Yeah, no, I do want to emphasize that um, it can't... Do not try I, this at home. <laughs> right. So I'm I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about the human body. I'm smarter than Ben Shapiro about it, though. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine it's healthy. Um, but also kind of we talk a lot about about body image and that's that's really a pretty unacceptable thing to put out for people right that like oh these you know these men who are at the uh, peak of their form and I, I imagine women uh, often have to go through the same thing that they look literally like an unhealthy human being like a dehydrated human being that being <laughs> yeah, kind of like the raisin. new goal <laughs> like a raisin yeah. <laughs> so uh it's not cool to look like raisins um, if you, by the way, did you ever watch that video that I sent to you? I did. It was so cute. Oh, okay. Okay. Audience, like you're going to have to do a little homework now, but if you want like a very good comparison, um, if you go look up the music videos from the movie Om Shanti Om, which came out in 2007, uh, there's a song called Doom Tana on there where they incorporate footage from a lot of older films, including this one. And then one of like our newer, this film is from 2007. And one of our newer stars, uh, Deepika Padukone, she is also in there. And she is like a nowadays actress. She's like my age. And she like, she looks great. She, but she's like noticeably more slender. And she, you can like really tell because she's wearing the same kind of outfit that Vijayan Timala is wearing in the in in Amrapali. And it's just really so striking how the standards have changed. And uh, just as a side note, how I was saying that I think that maybe especially Western or standards are affecting the body types that get put into Hindi films. Um, the Hindi film industry has run into a lot of trouble because of its dependence on uh, international moviegoers, whereas the regional film industries in India are doing a lot better for complicated reasons, maybe we can do a podcast extra or something. Okay, David, do you have do you have any final thoughts about this movie? <laughs> uh, totally worth watching. We do record uh, pretty far in advance for our schedule, so I don't know when precisely this will come out, or also like when you're listening to it. But it this film is available on Netflix, so totally worth putting on even just for a couple of minutes to kind of get its flavor. Um, and also another thing I wanted to mention, um, it's by no means authoritative, but it, it seems like uh, Netflix has acquired the rights to like a lot of uh, Bollywood films, uh, at least in the um, the United States streaming market. Uh, so I think that's very exciting. So if you're curious, there seems to be a lot of stuff there. Well, there you go. That's part and parcel of the very international reach of Hindi films, because when I search Netflix, I see a lot of Hindi movies, but I don't think there are any in any other South Asian languages, right? The, right. the the Mumbai film industry is the one that's really been marketed strongly abroad. I'd like to thank my sources today. Um, we'll be having these in the show notes as always. 
just to let you know, some of these, like the sources are all really nice. Some of the websites are a little bit sketchy. You might get some annoying pop-ups. Do proceed at your own risk. Um, but I'd like to thank uh, Patrick Cooney at vernonjohns.org. He had a very helpful synopsis of this movie. Arjun Narayanan, Love and Renunciation in Amrapali at Picture Perfect, a fond recollection of some brilliant moments of cinema. Yogesh Pavar in The Journey of the Amrapali Outfit at DNA India. Uh, Nandini Ramnath in uh, Films That Are 50, History, Dance, and High Fashion in Amrapali at Scroll.in. Shalini Shah in Clothes Maketh the Film at The Hindu. Sukanya Verma in What If Amrapali Were Remade Today at Rediff, and Emily Wax in Shalom Bollywood Reveals Indian Cinema's Surprising Stars of Its Golden Age at The Washington Post, and of course, and of course Wikipedia. If you want to get in touch with us, we are Maybe Today Matinee on Instagram or Facebook, at Mayday Matinee on Twitter. Uh, maybe today matinee at gmail.com if you'd like to email us and you can also contribute to the pod just search maybe today matinee on patreon i'm monica i'm david and this is maybe today matinee